This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and to entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we take a look at the Boeing 747. Why? Because it's episode 747, so of course. It's coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 747 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk Podcast. He's a national CFI of the year and an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Oh my gosh, did you say episode 747? Yes, I did. That number rings a bell. We should talk about that. Okay, we will. We will. And to help us with that is Rob Mark. Contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI, and Rob spent 10 years, 10 long years of his, <laughs> I was going to say lonely, career at the FAA as an air traffic, sorry, Rob, air traffic controller and supervisor. And, of course, he publishes the Jetwine blog. Um, good evening, I think, um, but I'm I'm considered on a work release program actually from the uh, from the FAA, but uh, that's actually not for public consumption. Okay, okay. Maybe next week I'll try to do a straight introduction, Rob, just to give Why? you give you a break. I know. <laughs> also with us is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian. He's at the American Helicopter Museum. I never get the sarcastic starts. I always get the I always get the straight straight ones. I don't know, Rob. Uh, Hi, everyone. Looking forward to talking about Boeing's biggest failure. No, no, come on, come on. That's not true. Also with us is our main man, Micah. Hey, it's great to be here. And um, I guess I'll say it ahead of time. We were supposed to have a guest, but we don't. And it's my fault. And it's my fault because Max Flight, you are always right, and I forget that. And the rules are Max Flight is always right, and if he's wrong, check rule number one. Because you always say never announce a guest, never speak about a guest ahead of time. And last night in Isaac's chat, there were only six people there, and I said, it's episode 747. We're going to have a very special 747 guest. I won't tell you who it is, but this guy's great, and he's going to be on the show. But unfortunately, due to a family emergency... He had to cancel. We'll have him on again, and we're not going to mention his name, but it's my fault, and I apologize to all our listeners and to all of you. Yeah, these things happen sometimes, and it's it's too bad we were really uh, expecting or anticipating a great conversation with him, but, uh, you know, things happen. We'll leave it up to Rob to pull us through this. It's an awful lot of pressure, you realize. Why don't you throw some of the pressure David's way? Because you're so easy. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what she okay, said. I'm not even going to touch that <laughs> Really? One. All right. So we're going to focus on the Boeing 747 this episode in celebration of this being the episode of the same number. And so we're going to kick it off with a, uh, a little, um, well, historical background that Micah provided us with. And let's, uh, let's roll that right now. About 10 months ago, back in July of 2022, the Airplane Geek celebrated episode 707. Appropriately enough, 
we celebrated that episode number by honoring the birth of the jet airliner and dedicating the episode to the Boeing 707. Well, it's 40 episodes later, and it's only right that for episode 747, we talk about what is arguably the next big aircraft, pun intended, that truly made commercial aviation what it is today. While there are other iconic commercial aircraft from many different manufacturers, from my perspective, Boeing 707 and 747 are the planes that truly change the world by making airline travel affordable to the general public and allowing both passenger and the air freight industry to come into its own. Back in 1965, the 707 had been in service for about seven years when Pan Am's Juan Tripp talked to his friend Bill Allen president of Boeing, saying that he wanted an airliner with two and a half times the passenger capacity of the 707 that would reduce seat cost by 30%. Now remember, in 1965, passenger jet travel was still relatively new. Airlines were still flying propeller aircraft, and not passenger propeller aircraft like we know today, not turboprops. Back then, airliners were still flying with piston engines. And sure, while developing a fuselage and wings big enough to handle two and a half times of passengers was going to be difficult, coming up with turbojets to power it meant developing a new engine technology, too. None of this stopped Bill Allen from taking on the challenge. He took Joe Sutter from the 737 team and assigned him to manage the design studies for Juan Tripp's new airliner. Then he made another brilliant move and consulted with many other airlines so he could truly learn what was needed for a successful design. Now here's something else to bear in mind when considering 747 development. The mid-1960s was the high point of the Cold War and the space race. The whole country had moon fever. Science and technology was on everyone's mind. This was the same time that Concord was in development, and in fact there was a supersonic transport or SST race going on too. Boeing had its own design, the 2707, and don't forget the TU-144, the Soviets' SST, which was the first to fly. Many engineers believed that long-range subsonic airliners were going to be a thing of the past and would soon be replaced with supersonic passenger aircraft. Boeing thought this might be the case as well, and decided to design the 747 in both freighter and passenger configurations. This way, even if sales of the passenger version declined, the freighter version would remain in production. What forethought! Some 50 years later, the SST has come and gone, while the cargo version of the 747 has remained in production until very recently, and will be flying for years to come. There are many great stories concerning the development of the 747 and just not enough time to tell them all. One of the early designs was for a double-decker airliner with eight seats across, but the idea was nixed due to evacuation concerns. The double-decker concept, however, is part of how we ended up with the 747's distinctive hump. To maintain efficient cargo loading for the freighter version, the cockpit was placed on the upper deck of the fuselage so the whole nose of the aircraft could open up for easy loading. With the full second level gone, no one was sure how to use the upper deck space behind the cockpit, you know, the hump. In the very early models, back in the heyday of airline service, that remaining upper deck became a first-class lounge with passenger access through a beautiful spiral staircase. Eventually, 
as the quality of passenger service deteriorated to what we have today, what we call the great race to the bottom, the upper deck just became more seating. Now let's not forget the 747's wing design and structure. It's a miracle in and of itself. The whole leading edge is built with Kruger flaps running almost the entire length. And then there's an incredibly complex three-part slotted flap system along the trailing edge. In combination, these flaps increase the 747's lift by 90% when fully deployed. But there's even more that needed to be considered that had nothing to do with the aircraft design. Boeing didn't have a factory large enough to build an aircraft the size of the 747. Once designed, they had no idea where it would be assembled. They searched all over the country for the right place and eventually settled on Payne Field, creating the Everett facility. One of my favorite stories about the 747's development is about Pratt & Whitney's JT-9D turbofans. New engine technology was needed in order to create an aircraft the size of the 747. While it's common today, back in the mid-1960s, the high-bypass turbofan engine, a jet engine that creates more thrust from the fan blades than from the jet itself, was a new concept. It was anticipated that this new engine concept would be able to deliver more than double the power of the then-current turbojets while consuming 33% less fuel. GE had developed the idea and created a high-bypass turbofan engine for the Air Force's C-5 Galaxy, but their commitment to that program didn't allow them into the commercial arena for some time. Pratt & Whitney was also working on the same idea and in 1966, when approached by Boeing and Pan Am, agreed to work on the engines for the 747, creating the JT-9D. Now this is the part of the 747 engine development story I just love. As you can imagine, developing a reliable high-bypass turbofan engine was not easy. Pratt & Whitney delivered their JT-9Ds and they were fitted to the 747, but suffered from regular compressor stalls and flameouts during test flights. Now Pratt & Whitney kept promising Boeing that they would fix the issue, but just weren't working fast enough as far as Boeing was concerned. In order to prove their point, Boeing invited the president of Pratt & Whitney for a test flight on the pre-production 747. Test pilot Jack Waddell was in command. While in mid-flight at altitude, Captain Waddell spooled up an engine to full throttle and there was a huge bang of a compressor stall as the engine flamed out. The Pratt & Whitney president jumped, but said it was just a glitch. Then Captain Waddell did it again on a second engine, leaving the aircraft flying with just two out of four. The Pratt & Whitney exec was visibly shaken when Captain Waddell said, Shall I do it to a third engine, or are you going to fix it? It cost Pratt & Whitney millions of dollars in research and redevelopment, but the problem was soon resolved. Pat Nixon, the then First Lady of the USA, christened Pan Am's first 747 on January 15, 1970, at Dulles Airport, and the first passenger flight was seven days later on Pan Am from JFK to London Heathrow. Shortly after that, many other airlines put the aircraft into service, though mostly for prestige or range rather than fuel savings. Like all aircraft, fuel economy is based on full occupancy. At the time, a 747 filled to 70% capacity still used 95% of the fuel it would use with a full passenger load. It didn't fly full until some time later. 
There have been many versions of the 747, starting with the 100 through the 400 series and up to the current 747-8. There were a few unique versions in between, my favorite being the 747-SP, a shortened version of the 100 series designed specifically to go non-stop from New York to Tehran, the then longest non-stop flight in the world. In some ways, the versions I find more interesting are the versions that never quite got off the drawing board. Early on, Boeing was looking at the possibility of a 747 trijet with a third engine S-ducted through the tail like the 727. The idea was to compete with the Lockheed L-1011 TriStar and McDonnell Douglas DC-10, but have greater cargo payload, range, and passenger capacity than either of them. The redesign, however, proved too great, and instead, Boeing moved on to the 747SP. In the late 1980s, there was some work done on a 747 Advanced Short Body, or ASB. The idea there was to compete with the Airbus A340 and the McDonnell Douglas MD-11 by combining all the advances that came about with the 747-400 with the fuselage of the shortened 747-SP. This idea didn't fly either, both literally and figuratively. There were many other variants that never came about. My favorite was in 1986, the 747-500. The idea was to build an ultra-long-haul 747 with a stretched fuselage of 500-seat capacity and a new reduced-drag wing that would fly faster and have a non-stop range of at least 10,000 miles. This would allow for non-stop service between London and Sydney. But the really cool part about the 747-500 idea was that it was going to be powered by four unducted fan engines. Can you imagine? Like the 707, there have also been many variants of the 747. Perhaps the most famous, and also most controversial, is the VC-25, what we call Air Force One when the President of the United States is on board. The VC-25 is famous because, well, after all, it is Air Force One, and controversial because the updated version, the VC-25B, a 747-8 version, is taking longer, costing more, and is more problematic than ever anticipated, all due to poor planning, decision-making, and some ludicrous budget negotiations. The E-4B is the U.S. Air Force's airborne command post, designed for use in nuclear war. Modified from a Boeing 747-200, the four operating E-4Bs serve as a survivable mobile command post for the President and Secretary of Defense. It carries a crew of up to 112, making it the largest manned aircraft in U.S. Air Force history. Then there's a 747 LCF, the large cargo freighter, what we refer to as the Dreamlifter. The Dreamlifter is a modified 747-400 that was created to fly 787 subassemblies from one Boeing plant to another. Rather than front-loading, it has a swing-open tail, similar in some ways to the old Super Guppy. It's huge, and many would say ungainly and ugly. So much so, that in fact it was reported that as it was being built, Boeing Commercial Airplanes President, Scott Carson, jokingly apologized to 747 designer Joe Sutter, saying, We're sorry for what we did to your plane. Many other 747 variants are no longer flying. Some of the more famous include the YAL-1 Airborne Laser Testbed, 
a 747 designed to test a megawatt-class chemical oxygen iodine laser weapon. There were two SCAs, shuttle carrier aircraft. These were two highly modified 747-100s, one taken out of service from American Airlines, the other from JAL, designed to transport the space shuttle piggyback style. The Evergreen 747 Super Tanker was a 747-200 modified as a firefighting tanker that could carry 20,000 U.S. gallons of flame retardant. And only recently retired from NASA, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy Aircraft, the one we call SOFIA, a former Pan Am 747SP that held a huge telescope and did exactly what the name suggested. The odds are we won't be seeing many, if any, more variants of the 747. The line was closed when a 747-8F was delivered to Atlas Air on January 31st of this year. In the 53 years the 747 was in production, Boeing delivered 1,573 of them. That's almost 30 aircraft per year, more than two per month. If things go as planned, four or five years from now, we'll see the two VC-25Bs put in service for the Air Force to use as Air Force One, and those will be the last new 747s for, well, forever. But the 747 will be flying for years to come. There are still a few mainstream passenger airlines that fly them regularly. Those include Air China, Asiana Airlines, Korean Air, and Lufthansa. But that could change at any time. It's still possible to fly on one, and it's an amazing experience. Once, many years ago, back when passengers were still allowed on a flight deck while in the air, I was fortunate enough to look out of the front windscreen of a British Air 747-200 somewhere over Greenland. Wow! Our good friend and former associate producer Brian Coleman can tell you what it's like to sit in seat 1A. He's done so on numerous occasions. Seat 1A on a 747 is a special place. It's forward of the cockpit, and because of the pointy end curvature of the fuselage, you get almost a full forward view out the window. And while the passenger version of the 747 is slowly being retired for what some call light twins, the cargo version will be flying for years to come. There's just not another aircraft that can do what the 747 does. The Boeing 747 has deservedly been called the Queen of the Skies. Long may she reign. For the Airplane Geeks, here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah. Oh, thanks, Micah. Nicely done. You know, it's hard to talk about the 747 without using the word iconic. I think, you know, everybody who's written, talked about, or otherwise referenced the 747 ends up using that word. It's an amazing aircraft, and I think we've we've all had experiences seeing it or flying on it or talking about it. And it, it, there's just nothing that uh, that looks like it. And it's it's the one aircraft that just about anybody can look at and identify because of that distinctive hump. Yeah, you know, um, many years ago, I was in uh, the San Francisco area visiting a friend who, at the time, uh, was in the airline catering business. And so um, he had the kind of uh, access credentials that could get you out on the ramp and basically anywhere out on the airport. And when I was visiting him one day, he said, I want to show you something. So we uh, we head over there and go through the gate that everybody has to go through and then through some gates that almost nobody can go through. 
and we round the corner, and sitting there was the very first United Airlines 747-400 before it had actually started revenue service, and they were prepping it and doing all that. And, of course, I hadn't seen a 747-400 before, and to come around the corner and to drive basically right up to one for the first time sitting there, it was spectacular. It was just something I, I will never forget. Such an impressive sight. It's a huge aircraft that that extended upper deck. It, it was uh, it was just amazing. You know what I think about is you know through that development process and and how big it was. I mean, this was a huge aircraft. Nobody had ever seen anything like this before. And uh, when they were first flying it, you know, they had the problems with the engines. And when they first took off, they knew they had the problems with the engines. And they hooked up, I think it was thirty-seven car batteries to power the hydraulics in case all the engines flamed out. <laughs> they weren't sure what was going to go on, but they had all these car batteries hooked up, in, you know, in parallel so that they could they could have some power. And I'm just trying to imagine the president of Pratt & Whitney, I think it was Jack Horner, but I'm not 100% sure. But what he's like on this plane, flying on this huge aircraft, knowing it's a test aircraft, as two engines go out. I'm purposely put out by, by Captain Waddell. I just can't imagine what he was feeling and what he would have said. Yeah, yeah, we'll fix it. We'll fix this. Just <laughs> yeah. get me down. I can just imagine. That would get your attention. Such a great story. Now, have any of you others uh, had any experiences over the years with... With the 747, things you remember, a first trip or anything of that sort? I flew on once. Only once? Only once. In fact, I flew on a, uh, a United 74-400 uh, not long before United stopped flying them. And I took the trip because I had never flown on one. And I said, if I don't hurry up, I'm never going to have a chance to ever find out what it's like. And I was on the main cabin over the wing uh, in in probably what was... And, and when you're mid-wing on a 7-4, on a you really can't see much out in front or behind of that wing. And I, I thought, okay, this is really fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I can't see much. Uh, I, uh, you can see a lot of aluminum. Yeah, it's kind of like another airplane, but I do remember the uh, uh, the discussions that came when the A380 uh, was uh, was coming and how it was going to bust the 747's chops forever. And uh, I was still in graduate school, then, and we had uh, uh, a director of the transportation center up at Northwestern who hated the A380. He thought it was the stupidest airplane concept ever designed and said, it will never even come close to the 74. Um, and of course, I, I didn't know. And I, it's amazing how many years later, I go, you know, Aaron, you, you were right on the money, man. I mean, they weren't even close. Uh, I forgot how many A380s have been built, but it's, it's just a few hundred. Um, but, uh, but what a shame. Uh, but no, but I, I love it when one goes over because I can still tell just by, because I'm right on the downwind for one of the uh, west runways at O'Hare, and I can just tell from the uh, sound of the engines because they're heavy and it's slow. And I go, yeah, that's a 7.4. And I go, yep, sure is. 
uh, because nothing else makes that kind of, uh, not that it's a disturbing noise, but it's a, it's a very, uh, very uh, prominent noise. And, and you know that those are four motors burning up there. But, you know, you say it's slow, which it is when it's coming in like that because it's got all that great lift. But it's also, I believe, the fastest airliner in the sky. It's got a cruise speed of Mach 0.85 and a max speed of Mach 0.92. It's unbelievable. Very quick. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, back in back in the day when uh, I was uh, uh, doing a lot of international traveling to meet with airline customers, I put a lot of miles in Dash 400s. Not Brian Coleman lots of miles, but uh, for the rest of us, lots of miles. You mean you actually had a purpose in traveling? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, Brian, ba-dum-bump, I'm just yeah. kidding. Yeah, I had actual meetings on the other side, but uh, mostly traveled to Asia, probably a dozen trips to Japan, uh, maybe six or eight to China, about the same to Singapore, and then a couple others, um, uh, Australia once, Sydney once, and uh, New Zealand once. And, and they were primarily uh, flights on United, although I did fly on um, on uh, JAL, Japan Airlines, occasionally, and uh, very occasionally Singapore Airlines. But, but mostly I was on the United 747-400s. And, uh, I mean, they were just big and comfortable and of course, um, well, not a cor- not of course, but um, I was in business class um, always. We were if if you arrive uh, that many time zones away and uh, basically have to you know, hit the ground running uh, with meetings, you know the company let us fly business class, which was nice. And the real joy was the very rare occasions when I got on the upper deck because that was quiet. That was all business travelers, at least when I was flying, uh, all business travelers, you know, no kids, no screaming babies uh, uh, or excessively drunk passengers. Uh, the ones that were, were sleeping. So it was a nice, quiet ride. You can get a lot of rest. I loved doing that. You know, when it first came out in the 1970s, that upper deck, as I mentioned, there was a spiral staircase, but it was a lounge. It was a piano bar. I mean, this was really high class. It was back when, you know, there wasn't any business class. It was first class and it was economy. And uh, there weren't lie flat seats. But, yeah, it was a piano bar and there was drinking and carousing and all those other kinds of things going on. And and everybody had to have one. It wasn't just Pan Am. I mean, it was a prestigious, like the 707, it was a prestigious airplane to have. And so everybody ordered them. There was one uh, very cool return trip, which I think was from – Narita. Yes, it was definitely, it was from Narita, uh, would have been to Chicago, uh, actually, on a United 747-400. And about, oh, halfway or two-thirds of the way through the trip, uh, a, uh, a flight attendant got on the PA system and made an announcement that the the captain uh, was retiring, and this was going to be his last flight, and we had experienced Experience, we're continuing continuing to experience really significant tailwind, and there was a possibility that we may actually break the the record for time between Narita and Chicago, and that they had talked to the I don't know air traffic control I imagine 
who basically gave them priority. And so we would not have to you know, circle or get in, get in the line. Rob can tell us what the, what the right terminology is, but we would have, we'd be able to go straight in and land immediately. And, um, and we broke the record, which was a really cool thing for this captain on his last, his last flight. I actually tried to find out today if I could see any references to this and who that, uh, who that captain might, might be, or uh, just exactly what the record was and if it had been broken um, since then. But I was kind of unsuccessful in that. Um, I, I, I did find that uh, there was in, uh, in 2019 a 747-8 Japan Airlines flight from Narita to Chicago, which reportedly is the unofficial record. And that was in 11 hours and 55 minutes, which my recollection of the time we we flew that was less than that. But I'm I must be remembering incorrectly. Or perhaps you had had a few too many libations uh, during the flight. That's why it seemed so fast. I was passed out in the upper deck. Yeah, yeah. So you might want to check with uh, NAA, the National Aeronautics Association. I think they usually keep the records for uh, for all those kinds of flights. I was thinking, I was trying to remember back when I was on the 747, and I know my last flight, uh, which was in uh, 2019, flew uh, Qantas to Australia, first time I had ever gone to Australia, to teach at a uh, Cirrus uh, event, uh, the Cirrus Owner Pilots Association. And it was fabulous. I really enjoyed it. Uh, just lots of... Uh, you know, good memories and nice, uh, nice seats. Not business class, but uh, you know, premium economy. Um, but I do remember, and I kind of wish I'd kept log, you know, log of all the different airplanes I'd flown, you know, on business and stuff like that, because uh, I just can't remember. I know I was on the seven four multiple times because I remember. I don't think I ever sat up top, but I remember kind of, you know going up the stairs to take a look or something like that. So it was, it was nice just to, to at least see it. But I'd never heard about seat 1A. That sounds uh, pretty spectacular. And Micah, you, you found uh, a reference. We were talking about speed records there. You found a reference to a, a British Airways flight 747 that holds or held a record. I vaguely remember this happening. It was uh, during, you know, the in the UK, they named their winter storms, and it was Winter Storm Sierra. It was back in February of 2020. And uh, it was a British Air 747 that did make a speed record, as far as we know, flew from New York to London in four hours and 56 minutes. That clocking it, it was going with the 200-mile-an-hour tailwind about 800 miles per hour. <laughs> wow. Yeah, ground speed pretty zippy and normally that flight takes about six and a quarter hours so that's that's pretty fast which means that the return trip needed aerial refueling to uh, to make it back 200 (laughs) yeah yeah well you know we just passed a significant anniversary for the dash 400 Uh, is a piece in simple flying that the uh, the 35th anniversary of the 747-400's first flight was just a few days ago, as we record this, April 29th. That was in 1988. It's hard to remember. Sometimes it's just difficult to you know keep in mind how old this design is. We're talking about the engines before Micah was. And, uh, you know, when I think back on the technology of those old JT9D engines, I mean, they're just, you know, they don't come even close to what, uh, you know, what's available today. 
but uh, 35 years for the 400's first flight. Northwest Airlines, I guess, was the launch customer for that. Yeah, I was looking at the very first flight, 1969. So, uh, yeah, I was. Uh, that was before most of us here were born, right? <clears throat> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Dave's got not. his hand up. <laughs> <laughs> the only one. The only one. That same simple flying article also uh, talks about Boeing 747s with the most flight cycles. And that was the, the one that was delivered to Royal Air Morocco in 1993. It's a Dash 400 registered as CNRGA. It has 14,077 flight cycles. That's just phenomenal. I mean, whoa. I don't know how many flight cycles a B-52 has these days, David. It's probably not as many as a commercial airliner, but 14,000 cycles, that's got to start to... Well, the inspection procedures have to be pretty good because you're looking at some likely metal fatigue, I would imagine. Well, I'm sure they don't want to wear out the B-52, so I'm sure they purposely, you know, don't have them up in the air that often. I mean, that's that's a major consideration. You know, you extend the life by not flying them too much. Years ago, I wrote an article for EAA's magazine about uh, flying with uh, CHP and uh, their airplanes here as they're patrolling in California. And they, they had a problem in that uh, their Cessna 206s, uh, they would only put them up four hours a day because they were just wearing them out too quickly. Well, you know, the 747-400 was a big major development. You know, it went from a a three-person crew with a flight engineer down to a two-person crew. And that was huge for the time. You know, that was a really, really big deal. I think that's something that the airlines really wanted to see then for obvious reasons. Sure, just like they'd like to soon see, you know, these cockpits down to one person. Sure. And eventually, maybe none. Yeah, and I mean, it was they put on a brand new wing. It was it was close to, uh, I guess, uh, fifteen feet longer, and uh, and the wing area had was uh, they added about another hundred and fifty square feet to it. I mean, it's just huge. You know, it it shouldn't be too difficult to pick up a used seven four seven if you if you want one, probably without engines, but maybe not. My little my little research here showed that there there are currently around three hundred. Boeing 747 aircraft in storage around the world. And most of those are stored in the United States, like at Victorville in California and Tucson. But there's also 747s in storage. Uh, Other locations as well, the UK, Germany, China. But there are uh, a lot of them around. Even at Victorville, I don't know if you're familiar with Victorville. Max Tresca, you probably... Uh, yeah, it's in the high desert, kind of uh, north and slightly east of uh, Los Angeles. So, yes, I, I've got a client uh, down out of the William Fox Field at Lancaster. So we fly by Victorville all the time, which is nearby. One time uh, when we were in the air flying a vision jet nearby, we heard uh, a United uh, captain coming in, and they were you know, delivering an airplane there. So, oh, yeah. You know, kind of its final flight. Victorville is an interesting place. I mean, that's what it's called, Victorville Airport, but it's, I guess it's technically the Southern California Logistics Airport. And there's um, 54 Boeing 747 aircraft at Victorville stored there now. UPS has 18, Korean Air at 10, Qantas 7, Air China has five 747s stored there. I wonder what it costs to store a 747 out there at Victorville. I guess it depends in part on if you want it to be preserved or not. I'm sure some of them are just carcasses, basically, that have been 
you know, rated for parts, engines long gone, I, I assume. And maybe others are just in storage temporarily or for the eventuality they might need to be put back in the air again. I mean, those you would certainly need to preserve. But if you just dump it in the desert without going through the preservation process, I don't think you'd ever fly it again. Hence your use of the word carcass. Yes. Yeah. Sounds like we need to do some investigative reporting and head on down there and let everybody know what goes on at Victorville. I always wanted to go to Victorville because, you know, Victorville, over the past decades, I would say, uh, there have been different ideas for commercial enterprises that could take use or make use of that resource, that facility. And I think they've tried to, you know, create it as a sort of a hub for certain aviation-related activities. And I don't really know right now, because it's been a long time since I didn't do it with Victorville, I don't really know what what exists there now other than the, you know, the storage area. I don't know if there are businesses running or not. Victorville was originally an Air Force base, George Air Force Base in Southern California, um, home of the wild weasels and stuff, and fan, a, a very large phantom base before it was bracked probably in the l- late, 80s, early 90s, and then proceeded to um, be converted to um, the Southern California Logistics Center. Yeah. Mm. We need to learn more about that and maybe talk to somebody who's uh, familiar with what's going on there, if it's interesting. Uh, you know, another thing that um, that sort of popped up here is the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the um, the sanctions against uh, Russia. That, uh, that resulted. And, of course, we know a number of aircraft are sort of stuck in Russia. And uh, we have a report from aerotime.aero that the uh, aircraft lesser BOC Aviation owns three Dash uh, 8 freighters that are leased by a, a Russian group and operated by their subsidiary Airbridge Cargo. And... Uh, the company defaulted on the leases, and they, um, um, BOC Aviation went to court, and the judges ordered them to pay more than $400 million to the, uh, the lessor, BOC Aviation. Uh, now, the company did recover one aircraft that's uh, currently operated by Air Belgium, but the other two aircraft are, are still in Russia and there was sort of a sub-story to all this when they were trying to locate where these airplanes were, these two other Dash 8s. Um, they actually used uh, Flight Radar 24 to figure out where the airplanes were. So I don't know if they'll ever get their $400 million. I was just thinking about the same thing. Yeah. But there are these, uh, these 747-8Fs stuck in Russia. Yeah. Allegedly, the Russians said, can we write you a check? (laughs) You know, what just came to my mind was, I know Rob, Rob, Max and I had a significant event with a 747, though I don't think it probably would come to mind originally off the top of our head. But we've had a very emotional moment with Flight 800. Oh, yes. At the um, National Transportation Safety Board Center. Um, that was probably a hugely emotional day for all three of us, even though we weren't personally involved seeing seeing that aircraft 
in that state and being able to sort of enter it and stuff. It was very ghostly and a sign of the times. One of the things that they commented on was that they knew what people's seats they were sitting in because the passengers had their names, you know, in, in what seats there were and such. So besides being a training facility, a training item, it was a memorial. So people, families would put flowers and, and mementos on that specific seat, you know, and climbing up into that deck, which is, you know, it was just a forward fuselage, but from the cockpit and the forward and the forward, co- you know, it was, it was pretty amazing that that much of the structure survived, which was a testament to the aircraft, but what a tragedy it was because it had so many people that went down in it. Yeah. So, so let's describe this, how this came about for our listeners who uh, weren't with us then. I'm not sure how long ago that was. It was quite a while ago, but we were at the uh, National Air and Space Museum next to Dulles Airport. Probably 2011, maybe, or something. That sounds about right. And that was back when the, you know, all pre-COVID and everything, way before that, when um, we would each year set up a table in the museum and uh, record interviews and meet with uh, meet with listeners and so forth. And uh, it turns out that the NTSB Training Center is not all that far from Dulles. In Leesburg. And so we were invited to uh, to go over there. And they gave us a, a presentation showing us, a, you know, we had access to a lot of the material descriptions of the investigation of um, that Flight 800 accident, which, you know, as you'll recall, exploded over the uh, Long Island Sound. And then we went into the training facility where they, as David mentioned, they had this, this reconstruction of the whole front of the aircraft. And if you've never seen one of these things, I mean, it's it's basically kind of like a chicken wire frame, sort of, and, and all the little pieces, including large sections of fuselage and little tiny scraps and, and everything are all assembled. All of which were recovered from the ocean. And when you walk up to it, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's large, right? It's a 747. It's the front front end of a... 747. So it's this big, imposing thing. And you think about all the people that perished there. And, and as David said, that what, super emotional when you go up and you, and, and you see the, you know, the seats and you can see who was sitting in which, which, in which seats. But the, the, one of the interesting parts was, well, there are a lot of conspiracy theories about that accident. People have all kinds of crazy ideas, but when you actually go and look at the physical evidence, you can really see clearly that the explosion started in the, you know, in the center fuel tank. You can see how that blew one bulkhead, inter, you know, internal bulkhead out, which hit another bulkhead, which slammed forward, which created a crack. And you can see how the crack propagated across the nose of the aircraft. I mean, you can just... You can just see all the stuff. And then when you look at it, you know for a fact that the the conspiracy theories about missiles and all this other stuff is just 
well, it's the ramblings of people who are uninformed and don't have all the facts and certainly don't have the ability to actually look at the physical evidence. Uh, but yeah, very emotional, interesting thing. Um, that's been or has been um, decommissioned. Decommissioned, as David mentioned, it was used as a, as a training tool. The NTSB obtained the permission of the families to use it in that context in this big training center, with the proviso from the families that it not become a shrine. As a training tool. Great. And a lot of people, this is something I didn't know before that trip, that uh, you know, not only do the usual people, investigators, NTSB, FAA, not only do, do, do those people uh, make use of this training facility, but also uh, people from other countries come. So there are a lot of people that get, that get trained there. But I guess, David, they um, you know, believe that it's it sort of run its course as – as uh, you know, providing a, a valuable training experience, and so it's, um, I guess, it's not there any longer. Well, you know, the the seven four seven certainly it's been around for a long time, and so yes, it's been involved in some major accidents. Uh, TWA that you just spoke of, of course, Tenerife, the largest aircraft accident to ever take place when uh, two seven four sevens collided years ago. Right. Uh, there was you know the Lockerbie incident with uh, with Pan Am, but also. It also is an amazing aircraft in terms of a tank and the kinds of surviving situations that it took place. You guys, I'm sure, remember United 811. Uh, that was back, uh, when was that? Uh, I'm trying to remember. But it took place in Hawaii. It was a Boeing uh, 747-100. And it was on its way from L.A. to uh, um, LA to, to Australia with a stop in Honolulu and a stop in uh, in Auckland, New Zealand. But taking off after it was leaving Honolulu, uh, there were 355 people on board. There was the cargo latch came undone and blew out the whole side of the aircraft. Hmm. There were 355 people on board. Eight people perished, unfortunately. They were sucked out when that happened. There was a huge hole in the side of the aircraft at the nose, but they landed it and everybody else was okay. And they rebuilt it and it flew again for years to come. The thing is built like a tank. It was 1989. I just looked it up February. Wow. But you know what I think I remember from that visit to the NTSB uh, training facility was, uh, so for those that haven't been there, uh, I would say it was, imagine, it was like building a model airplane and and you hadn't put any of the uh, covering on the fuselage and all you had were little sticks of wood everywhere uh, and you could see through the aircraft and it was a framework. Uh but when when we saw that seven four, I mean, we saw the un, in, unbelievably tiny pieces of metal that were stuck in exactly the right places on that chicken wire uh, uh, fuselage, and uh, not just that they managed to put it back together, but how in God's name did they even find that stuff? In the water. I mean, maybe it was, I don't know, maybe it was so light it was floating. But I mean, I, you know, I don't think I've ever really uh, uh, understood how they located all that stuff. Because that was, uh, when was TWA 800 again? Uh, 2000, no, 19. July 17th, 1996. Yeah, I mean, that's a 
long time ago. But at that time, uh, the technology, I mean, it paled in comparison to what we have now. Uh, But they still managed to find... I forgot what the actual percentage was of the airframe, but or of the aircraft, but it it was a large percentage. It was, but there have been um, other incidents. There, there's a, a fairly recent. Uh, well, actually, it was in 2021, but uh, the the investigation report has come out. This was uh, a, a converted Boeing 747-400 freighter uh, operated by Longtail Aviation, and. It had uh, just departed from uh, Maastricht Airport. It was headed for uh, JFK, and there was a contained engine failure. They dumped fuel and you know, landed, and there were no injuries. There was no fuselage damage or penetration because it was a contained engine failure. But engine parts did fly out the tailpipe, which um, you kind of expect. I think there were uh, turbine parts coming out of the uh, out of the engine. And two people on the ground were actually injured from the parts. I don't know if you remember this, but I I remember seeing, I think, uh, somebody in their front yard with this big section of of, uh, engine pieces on the the ground there. Uh, And there was also some damage to some some vehicles and and houses. I saw a picture of a fan blade stuck in the roof of a car. It looked like it was an antenna. It was really (laughs) amazing. Really crazy. So the uh, the Dutch investigative agency just uh, released their their report. They found that the second stage blade outer air seal of the uh, high pressure turbine, uh, as well as the turbine itself, had deteriorated. So this is um, what was this? Was this a, a CF six engine? I think I'm not. Uh, I don't recall right now. Um, but basically, you know, if you can imagine a, a turbine that's spinning inside of a, imagine a cylinder, you want the tips of the turbine blades as, as it's rotating to uh, be as close as possible to that case, to that cylinder. You don't want a gap between the tips of the of the turbine blades because otherwise you get gas, um, you know, pressurized gas leaking across this. Bad news, Max. It was a Pratt & Whitney 4000. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes, 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 yes. And so... There are these outer air seals that provide this seal between the the gaps uh, in the tips of the turbine engines in the engine case. You know, they're usually made out of uh, high-temperature materials because this is in a very hot environment, ceramics or special metals. And there were apparently uh, two service bulletins issued by Pratt & Whitney in 1993. And the FAA issued a couple of ADs along the way. And the second service bulletin called for inspections, but the service bulletin from Pratt came out after this engine's last shop visit in 2009. So this this engine didn't have those service bulletins, um, service bulletins applied. Otherwise, the thought is, is that if they had done the inspections caused it, called out by the service bulletins, they would have seen that there was a deterioration there. So... Um, yeah, I mean, you might have a, an old 747 converted freighter with old engines, um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you won't have, you won't have problems come up like this one. And, and this is, I think, kind of rare to have people injured by airplane parts falling out of the sky. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's kind of the great fear of, of people on the ground. But the, the number of incidents of people being killed by falling airplane parts are so small. I mean, that almost never happens. There was a, um incident a few, few weeks ago. Uh, this was a Cargo Lux Boeing 747 at Luxembourg. And the 747 experienced this hard landing, and it bounced. There's a video that someone's posted on, I don't know, I think Twitter, but I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. When the 747 uh, experienced this hard landing and bounced, you can see the wing, you know, flexing as a result of the bounce. And, ah, here's the CF-6. I knew there was a CF-6 in here somewhere. And so the GE CF-6 engine, one of them, one of them, actually struck the uh, the runway and scraped against it. Now, I've never seen a 747 scrape its engine on a on, on a runway. So the crew initiated a go-around and climbed and landed safely and everything. The crew and the passengers were okay. Uh, but they do have this uh, uh, the CF-6 with a uh, scraped-up nacelle at the moment. They've just got to stop uh, letting student pilots fly 747s. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing aircraft. It really is. And uh, and the good news is, although they're not building them anymore, like I said, they'll be flying for years to come. We will see them in the air uh, as cargo aircraft. Um, eventually, they'll be retired as passenger aircraft. They're just not efficient enough. Uh, four engines as opposed to two, that costs a lot more money. But uh, they are beautiful. And, uh, and I think we're very fortunate to be in an age where we're still able to see them and appreciate them. Yes, for sure. Now, I asked listeners in our Slack group and also uh, in our Discord to uh, send along any photos they have taken of 747s over the years. And uh, we've, got, uh, we've got some. I suspect that probably over the next day or two before we publish, we'll get some more. And so we'll, we'll add them into the show notes for this episode at airplanegeeks.com slash 747. Uh, but uh, Greg sent in uh, a photo of the Sheik of Dubai's 747, which is kind of spectacular. I'd like to get a look at the inside of that one. I bet that's really... I bet I bet Donald Trump would be impressed. Possibly. <laughs> <get> my meaning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, Gold bathroom okay. fixtures. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's what I mean, yeah. Extravagant, uh, no doubt. Adam sent in a photo. Uh, this is back in November 2006 when the uh, the President uh, Bush visited Joplin, Missouri. We've got a picture of Air Force One there. Greg also sent some other photos, a nice, nice shot of uh, uh, an Atlas Air cargo plane. And also a, a shot of a Lufthansa 747-8. This one is landing at LAX. And he says this is uh, during what would have been the Dorkfest weekend of 2020. So that's a cool, uh, a cool photo to add to the collection. And it's great to be able to see the 7478 next to the other ones because you really can tell the difference. The upper deck is extended and uh, just amazing. I think it's the sleekest of the bunch. Yeah. Hey, I was wondering, Rob, um, I know that, for example, airline pilots have to retire at age 65. What about cargo pilots? And I don't know the answer to this. Is there a shot for us to uh, to sign on and fly 747s after uh, age 65? Um, no. Uh, the the uh, uh, cargo guys, the FedEx guys, UPS, all that, they, they must also retire at 65. Hmm. Hmm. So at least oh, well. try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
darn. But you could fly for net jets or flex jets if you wanted to. Oh, that's true. All right, what's up with the geeks? Uh, Micah, you've got something for us. Well, yeah, Brian and I just recorded episode 41. Now, Brian wanted to read all this time. He's been saying, let's record an, uh, an unexpurgated version. We won't do any editing. Let's let the listeners see what it's like to record a show without editing. I didn't necessarily think this was a good idea. <laughs> but, you know, Brian's a producer and it's his show, so... That's what we did for episode 41. It's an unexpurgated version, and uh, I apologize to all our listeners ahead of time, but take no responsibility for it. So that's just how it goes. But really, the most important news of this week is a happy birthday to Hillel, a happy birthday to David, and then upcoming happy birthday to Max Flight. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we all kind of clustered around the... Early May and close to it. All right. Hey, Max Trescott, are you going to tell us about this cat? I saw the – so it's sad news, but I loved the name of this uh, animal. <laughs> yeah. So I have to uh, tell everyone that uh, a couple of days ago, the West Valley Flying Club cat – uh, passed along, and he'd been there for about 12 years, I think. And I, I think you commented about his name, which I'll spell it. It's F-I-Z-Z-D-O, spell, uh, pronounced Fizdo. Yeah. And you're kind of, everyone's smiling here because most people would know. That's the sound of the abbreviation for the FAA's Flight Standard District offices, of which they're probably eh, 65 or 70. They are the regional offices that are scattered all around the country so that they can interact with local airmen and, uh, you know, do all kinds of, uh, you know, provide all kinds of uh, different uh, services. And uh, it was really kind of a joke. And I'm told that uh, over the years, the various FAA inspectors who you know, came and visited, you know, found it amusing, yeah. fortunately. I mean, I can imagine <laughs> might not find it amusing. Uh, but Fizzo was really special. Um, I, I keep telling people I liked him more than I liked my own cats. Uh, he just had great personality. He was a very large black cat. And I saw the... Uh, story from the club, and it gave a lot of detail that I had not heard about. Uh, and uh, originally, uh, you know, back a dozen years ago, the uh, club apparently had an issue with uh, rats, <laughs> which I didn't know. <laughs> and uh, so they went to uh, a local shelter. Now, this part I, I do know. They went to a local shelter, and the shelter was initially hesitant to allow uh, the club to adopt a cat because they were worried who was going to pay attention to this cat at night. And uh, the club raised the question, well, who looks after a cat during the day in a home where everyone's at work? Yeah. So fair point. They let us uh, adopt Fizdo. And the shelter even came and visited a couple weeks ago to check up on him, uh, check him, you know, after they first adopted him and they confirmed that he indeed seemed to be a happy cat. And uh, turns out that the rodent problem ended with in literally just a couple of days of him showing up. Now, they made a uh, cardboard cutout of him a few years ago 
And they had a, a prize uh, for people who submitted photographs of, you know, FISDO in different kind of uh, settings. Uh, and I remember one, one person, I think this is the one who won, uh, he went skydiving while holding the cardboard cut out of the cat <laughs> and got a picture of FISDO, you know, skydiving with him. Uh, we loved him very, very much. He was just uh, very personable and uh, just liked hanging out with people. You know, he was not, not a, you know, scaredy cat of any kind. He just loved hanging out with people. And there were many times when I was giving instruction in the uh, simulator and I had him in my lap and I used to post pictures on Facebook of him on my lap or various other things. And, you know, we've got doors in the place and he'd sometimes get locked into different places. You'd see this plaintiff face through the glass. <laughs> he was, he was just a character. We absolutely love Fizdo. So, um, I'm guessing that the club will get some, uh, you know, replacement cat or cats pretty quickly because, uh, you know, I think anybody who's lost a, a pet or an animal knows what a, a big hole there is in their life when, when they pass on. So anyway, uh, all I can say is rest in peace, Fizdo. You, uh, I'll always remember you. You were just quite an awesome cat. It'll also be interesting to see if the rodent problem returns. Yeah. Well, I have been hanging out there more often lately, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I'm wondering if uh, uh, any of you listening have pets that have uh, interesting aviation-themed names. I wonder if there's any others out there. If, if there are, let us know. I'd be curious. I just love stuff like this. It gives you a good laugh. So if you have a, if you have a pet with some kind of an aviation name, just uh, send an email to us at uh, thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com or put it in our uh, Slack team or, or on Discord. We'll We'll pick it up, see if anybody's got anything uh, that can match FISDO. The didgeridoo means it's time for the Australia News Desk. Here's two of the craziest guys we could find south of the equator. It's Steve Vischer and Grant McHaren from the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast. Dateline, 30th of April, 2023. Well, good day, folks. Welcome to the Australia Desk for this week's episode number 747. Well, Grant, we thought since it's the 747 episode uh, this week, we, we could have a little bit of fun and maybe talk about some experiences we've had on the Queen of the Skies, as everybody so lovingly likes to call that aircraft. <laughs> indeed, indeed, mate. You know, maybe this could be the queen of our episodes. Well, jeez, well, I've got no comeback for that, Grant. There could be so many responses to that, really. <laughs> anyway, Grant, uh, let's talk about 747s. There's been quite a lot of them here, um, you know, operating in and out of Australia for many, many years. We actually don't see a lot of them here in Melbourne anymore. In fact, really, here in Melbourne, the only ones that you would really see coming in regularly would be freighters. I know uh, Cathay brings one in most days, as does Singapore Airlines. But, uh, you know, really, they've all been replaced these days by Dreamliners and um, A350s for long-haul stuff. Yeah, and triple sevens and things like that. Mm. So, yeah, we've we've had some memorable flights and we've had some experiences with seven fours. The interesting thing is, for me at least, that uh, all this love of aviation that I have really stems from my first ever flight, which was in an Air New Zealand seven four seven, probably I guess a two hundred series, uh, back in nineteen eighty nine when I uh, travelled to the United States for the first time as an exchange student, a wide eyed seventeen year old at that time, <laughs> and uh, I remember, you know, and I was actually a bit nervous about flying I'd, I'd as I said never done it before but I remember rolling out onto the runway there at Melbourne and thinking well it's it's a heck of a long way to swim if I'm going over there and uh, <laughs> anyway it, it was quite an overcast day I remember and we sort of rocketed down uh, runway 27 there at Melbourne 
you're thrown back into your seats. It's, you know, loud and it's rumbly and it's very, very cool, I always think, in a 7.4. And uh, rocketing up into the sky and up into the clouds and I just thought, oh, my God, how good is this? And I've been hooked ever since. <laughs> yeah, they are pretty good. Um, I've, I don't think I've ever flown on a Dash 100. I've flown on a 747 200, 300, 400 and the SP with Air New Zealand, Qantas, Aerolineus Argentinas, United. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the other airlines I've been on 74s with. Yeah, well, interestingly, United, uh, they used to be quite regular visitors here to Melbourne and to Sydney with uh, 747s, and I've done that flight in the early 90s. Can you believe, Grant, doing that uh, 14-and-a-half-hour flight from uh, Melbourne to Los Angeles, which just seems to feel like it's a bit longer every single time you do it as you get older? Uh, back in those days, there certainly wasn't in-seat, uh, in-flight entertainment. Um, you basically sat there and read books or, you know, watched whatever movie they might pipe onto the screen at the end of the bulkhead of the cabin. <laughs> Yep, that was it. And you waited for the tranquilizer trolley to come around and you ordered uh, two beers and everyone looked at you like you were being a bit rude, but they'd finished theirs as you were just starting your second one. And by the time you'd just finished your second one, the tranquilizer trolley had come around again and everyone would go, <laughs> oh yeah, I'll have two. But, but yeah, it, uh, you know, I've done the uh, transpolar route with Aerolineas Argentinas where their Dash 200s didn't have the range to do Buenos Aires Auckland direct. So they had to go down to Rio Gallegas to refuel and then go from there from the south of Argentina across to Auckland. That was that was fascinating. Um, I've been on a few flight decks. Uh, I got a personalised tour of the Qantas jet base at Mascot in Sydney and uh, spent a lot of time on both 300 and 400 flight decks with a Czech captain looking at how the engineers panel on the 300 got changed to a single, well, the whole APU panel on the engineers panel and the 300 got replaced by a single button on the 400 on off <laughs> <laughs> yeah interesting times and technology certainly has moved on over time and it sort of moved with the 747 uh, right up until just recently really with the uh, obviously the closure of the uh, production line there at everett and uh, that's that's a bit sad but you know really there are there's a lot of exciting things coming on in aircraft development and you know maybe the 747 has had its time um, interestingly probably ob- obviously the biggest uh, operator here has always been Qantas they ordered their first uh, 747 actually a dash 100 in uh, uh, October of 1967 but actually Grant I think the first one that came here was a dash 200 in 1971. The other uh, probably really famous 747, of course, was the Qantas uh, 747-438, which was the first 400 series that Qantas took, registration VHOJA. That one actually flew the non-stop flight from London to Sydney uh, in 20 hours and 10 minutes, 18,001 miles that was, and it set a record for that time. And that aircraft has been memorialised. It's actually its last flight was actually also historic, taking off from Sydney, flying down to uh, Wollongong to what is now known as the Shell Harbour Airport, and it is to this day on uh, static display there with Haas. And of course, just a couple of years ago, Qantas flew their last 747 across the Pacific to the Boneyard, and that was a very famous flight in itself. A flight crew, including our good friend Owen Zup, was on board, and uh, they went up and actually flew off the east coast of Australia a uh, flight path that uh, looked like a giant flying kangaroo in the skies. It was absolutely spectacular. As I mentioned, our friend Owen Zup was on board, and here's what he had to say about the planning for that flight. It was a very interesting exercise because when they first pulled it up on Google Earth, they had to look at it, then they had to convert to lat longs, etc., etc. And then you had to consider how tightly an aircraft could turn around the tip of a tail and what speed you could do that at. Oh, gee, well, if we were doing that, we'd prefer to have the flaps out. Well, then we can't be above flight level 200. 
oh, but if we're sliding down the back of the creature, well, we don't want to waste time. There was a million variables and I came in at probably the the 11th hour after all the hard work had been done. Um, so I was very fortunate. I take my hat off totally to, to the chaps that came up with it. And it wasn't just the, the tech crew who did it. It was all the support from the, the teams in airspace management. It was defence because of the airspace at Williamtown. Uh, there were just so many stakeholders that made that happen. And whilst it seemed to have a degree of secrecy about it, we weren't to tell anyone it was happening, it wasn't for media purposes. It was because there were certain environmental conditions we had to meet to be able to do it. Uh, if the wind was above a certain speed or the turbulence level, well, it probably wasn't going to be ideal to draw the kangaroo. In terms of uh, the harbour and the salute to AJA and the kangaroo, uh, those were all pre-flown in the um, simulator to trial out what had been worked out in theory and all, all of those to try and highlight what the problems were or potential problems were, I should say. And there were so many little things that came up, even to the degree that they tried to uh, do the automatic uplink of the flight plan into the flight management computer, but it was just too many waypoints. So they had to be all manually loaded in. So with all the, the festivities that were happening, two of the crew members had actually set up their longhand, entered all the waypoints in, there was about 75 just for the kangaroo. So they'd put those in. So while everyone was standing on the stairs sort of doing the waving shot, uh, there was a big yellow note, don't touch anything basically because it had all been put in longhand. So there you go, Grant. And for all that technology that's on board those aircraft, it's interesting to know that the uh, the humble post-it note still plays a very, very important role. <laughs> yes, it does, mate. And uh, I've used things like that a few times in cars and aircraft saying, you know, don't know. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. <laughs> Uh, in our uh, Playing Crazy Down Under, the new series, uh, if you want to listen to that full interview, that's in uh, Series 2, Episode 2. So uh, we invite you to uh, go and have a listen to that full interview. It's really interesting. And, of course, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not listening to ours, huh? Yeah, playingcrazydownunder.com. No, there we go. There's a bit of shameless self-promotion. Now, Grant, in the news this week, uh, we see that our regional operator Rex, we talk about Rex a lot, they've actually been uh, cutting some routes. I don't know that they're very particularly happy about that either. No, they're not, mate. They're uh, they're making some, uh, well, I wouldn't say wild accusations or things like that, but they're saying it's, you know, labour shortages, hard to get pilots and crew, can't run all the flights. Uh, but, yeah, Qantas Link's still running them. That's interesting. You know, there's always this, uh, this tension that goes on between uh, all these competing interests. And, I mean, isn't that what competition is supposed to be about? I'm just saying. But, uh, you know, one, one, one regional operator will go into an area and they'll start operating and the other one will say, well, that's not fair. That's our market. Well, you know, that's not what competition is all about. <laughs> but, you know, both of them are getting subsidised by the government on some of these routes. Yes, Oops. well, details, details, yes. Speaking of details. Speaking of details, we did mention last week with the sad passing of Max Hazelton, and I just wanted to make a correction. I was talking about the cadet scheme. Uh, of course, um, uh, Hazelton Airlines was uh, part of the ANSAT network back in those days, and they were wound up uh, when ANSAT was wound up, of course. And I was talking about a cadet scheme. I actually did get that mixed up. It was actually Kendall Airlines, which was another regional operator, uh, the other half of which was merged with Hazelton to become Rex uh, further on down the track. So just a correction there. Well, you know, maybe Hazelton did have a cadet scheme too. There were plenty of them going on at that time, but the one I was yep. thinking of was actually with Kendall Airlines. Interesting to see cadet schemes coming back, by the way. 
But uh, well, mate, moving from commercial to my favourite area, which is defence, of course, uh, we mentioned last time that the Defence Strategic Review uh, was just about to drop. Well, it dropped with a clang on Monday. I've been reading it ever since, and oh my, there is a lot to digest with this one. Very much a lot of changes, but uh, for the Americans, it's great because we're doing a lot more foreign military sale purchases of US equipment and possibly some direct purchases with US vendors. So I will have more on that on a future Playing Crazy Down Under episode that we're putting together and also a couple of episodes of the Australian Defence Magazine podcast, which I host and we produce. Yes, and of course, uh, you know, in in context of what we're doing here, we'll be looking at, um, well, for Australian Defence Magazine, you'll be looking at uh, across the whole defence sector. But of course, uh, here on this show, we'll be looking at how it uh, potentially affects anything to do with uh, defence aviation. That's the focus we want to have here. And uh, hopefully it doesn't affect it too much unless it's in a positive way. Hey, we can but hope. But uh, no doubt we'll have snippets for you guys coming up, uh, especially after we have our full episode on the topic. But mate, I think it's probably time to wrap this one up and it's a very special anniversary today, isn't it, as we record? Yeah, it sure is. Well, first off, it's the 30th of April. We always record this on a Sunday. So happy birthday to Mr. Vanderhoof. And, uh, yep, it's, a, a, you know, always on the 30th. Well, of course, as we record this, it's the day before, but, you know. In the US it is, and, but it's the 30th here. Yeah, and, and of course, by the time this goes to air, the event will have well passed. But happy birthday, my friend. I hope you uh, had a wonderful, wonderful day. The other anniversary is, uh, as it turns out, it's 14 years ago since uh, Grant and I had our first ever meeting at Moorabbin Airport. So sorry about that, Grant. It's, it's just still lingering <laughs> on all these years later. <laughs> I think we have to apologise to the world, not to each other, <laughs> and maybe to Stephen Pam. I mean, look what it's done to him. Yeah, look at him. He had a lot more hair, hair in that photo. <laughs> I think we all did, I even when I had did. a buzz cut. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's everything we have for you on this week's Australia Desk. I guess we'll be back next week and see what anniversaries we can pluck out of that one. But until then, I think the best way that uh, we can end this is Happy birthday to you. Oh. Happy birthday to you. For God's sakes, fade me out. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, never a dull moment. Thank you, gentlemen. That was that was a very clever way to end things. But but you know, I always I always have a couple of questions after those those guys from down under speak in that fern language. There's you know, uh, but you know, you heard Steve early on mention what his first trip to the uh, to the states, and he said he was an exchange student. And does anybody know what he was exchanged for? <laughs> what we sent in return? Yeah. I I don't know. I just just wondered because I it it got past me. But then the other thing I've noticed is that it, there's very seldom a comment from Grant that doesn't include the word beer. Has anybody <laughs> else noticed that? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess. Okay, I'm just yep. you know what Bye. can I say. Back to the exchange student comment, I'm sure his biggest challenge coming to America was the uh, the huge difference in the language. It's like, ah, it's a foreign language. They don't speak English. Yeah. Well, you can, uh, of course, as they mentioned, be sure to listen to their podcast, Plain Crazy Down Under, which is just plaincrazydownunder.com. And then they also mentioned the Australian Defense Magazine podcast. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. But uh, uh, that's just australiandefense.com.au slash podcasts. And, yeah, it's hosted by Grant. Steve is the producer. And, um, you know, look forward to that. Check it out. All right. Uh, a little bit of listener mail. 
Um, Andy wrote in and said the Air France 447 accident discussion reminded me of a terrible event I heard about while working accident investigation at Boeing. Aero Peru Flight 603. Bad air data system due to adhesive tape left over static ports after the aircraft was cleaned and polished. That's a that's a problem. But an otherwise perfectly good airplane at night over water with little to no outside visual reference. Situational awareness, he says, uh, of, uh, of good old uh, simple pitch and power might have saved them, but human factors were stacked against the crew, I'm sure. He says the Air France 447 stall warning going off reminded me of another accident, U.S. Air 427, where aft column was held all the way down in spite of the stick shaker being continuously activated. And then uh, we actually got a follow-up from Andy. He said, uh, in reference to last episode with Dave Pascoe, he said, Great to hear, Mr. Pascoe. I love live ATC, having used it to hear our son solo and to play back my, quote, rusty pilot flights for learning. That's a pretty cool idea. Also enjoy channel surfing from local frequencies to all around the world. He says, Thank you, Dave. In the way back days of youth, I would listen to Center for hours on a crude, cheap, toy-like open chassis receiver. And then uh, Denver wrote in, and um, this is back to uh, the um, the topic of traveling with children and holding them in your lap. Or it's the new tanker story. I know it. It just keep, thank God goes on and on and on. <laughs> Um, but that's okay because Denver writes that the FAA has published some tips for traveling with children. Um, there's a video on YouTube that's it's 30 minutes long, so it's pretty comprehensive, and it includes reasons to use car seats and strategies. And um, at the end, the summary addresses safety. And so uh, Denver thought that uh, you all would appreciate um, this. And this this is actually an episode of the FAA's podcast called The Air Up There. And this particular one is, uh, let's see, is uh, what well, they're calling a season five, episode one, Flying with Kids, Tips from an Expert. And so uh, we'll put a link to to that podcast episode in the show notes. Well, I'd like to give my expert tip, having done lots of flying on airplanes with lots of kids. And by the way, I've always noticed if you're on a flight to Orlando, it's like, ah, watch out. <laughs> it's going to be just loaded with uh, kids. But uh, I, I always travel with earplugs, and I always wear them when I'm on airliners all the time, even if there aren't any kids. And I'm always shocked that I never see anybody else doing that. Uh, but you figure the overhead announcements are always too loud, uh, and you've got the general noise. And then if you happen to have the screaming baby, I got to tell you, I, I so much enjoy those flights. I don't even hear the kids. I just have those earplugs in and I'm perfectly comfy. So anyway, that is my expert tip on traveling. Yeah. Well, and associated with that, that, uh, that strategy often, but not always, works with chatty seatmates mm. who don't seem to leave you alone when you want to be left alone. So yeah. earplugs are... Or headphones or something can sometimes uh, lessen that. You know, with that thought in mind, I mean, we're all wearing, uh, of course, listeners can't see it, but we're all wearing headphones as we record this. And uh, I always bring one of these uh, wireless sets with me. Uh, I've been doing it for years. And uh, 
I, I still remember a time when I was on a Southwest flight, and I, I actually am not that chatty on an airplane. I like to just I either want to read or I want to listen to a podcast or, you know, I just want to chill out. And, and I remember the guy next to me talking, and I, I, I finally took my phone. I said, you know, I'm sorry. I, I can't hear what you're saying because I've got my headphones on, you know, and I, a few minutes later, he lifted up one corner and said, well, you probably didn't hear this, but I was going to tell you that, um, you know, on the ground, don't those things, you know, and I thought, you're kidding. I've never had anybody do that before. Um, but, uh, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Talk about invading your space. That's crazy. As far as earphones go, the one thing on my flight to Orlando, I was trying to import to Amber. One of the greatest things I miss, and I can't believe it was this airline that did it, but United had Channel 9 yes, on yes. their flights. Yeah, loved it. I loved it. It was the greatest thing ever. And if you don't know what United, what if you didn't know what United Channel 9 was, was the cockpit. They would pump the cockpit through. You, you get your earphones. You plug in those. I, I don't know even how they worked. They were basically just tubes with um, the, the right. But you plug them into your your seat, and you could listen to Channel Nine, and it was great. You know, it was it was the only thing better would have been Channel Nine with a moving map. But that being said, Channel Nine is still there. Um, it's it's still there on many United flights, mostly the older Continental aircraft, but it's also up to the cockpit the, to turn it on. A lot of times they don't like to have it on, but it's there. Uh, and if you ask them to turn it on, oftentimes they will, and it is great with the moving map. Uh, last time I flew back from uh, London and I visited the cockpit and gave them some gifts, they said, do you know about Channel 9? And I said, yeah. And they said, let me make sure it's working. And they walked me back to my seat, one of the, the, the first officer did. And, and uh, it, it is there, and all Always look for it if you have it. Uh, if you if you if you have the entertainment system, and the uh, one more thing on the earplugs, they're great when you get to the hotel, and they give you that last room, which is right next to the elevator or next to the ice machine. <laughs> it's like you really want the earplugs. Coming well, in. do you know there's a special earplug made for flying called Earplanes that's designed not only to make things quieter for you, but they're designed for the pressure in terms of the pressure sensitization of your ears. It has a ceramic disc in there that slows it down so you don't have the problems that you typically do. Uh, they're very inexpensive, they're disposable, and they do both things, Earplanes. Yeah. yeah. I'm slowing down as it is, so I don't need that. Do you remember those early headphones that were plastic and they just kind of stuck in your ear. I somebody mentioned Yeah, it, I think that's what David was talking about. Plastic yeah. tubes and Oh right. They were, yes. They were They're incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. So there's no wires for those of you who are, you know, too young to have experienced these. There's no wires. It was just a a plastic tube, well, two plastic tubes that went into each kind of yeah. earpiece, right? They were called pneumatic headphones. Oh, that's a good name for them because that's exactly the description, yeah, it's just the sound coming through the air in the tube sort of a thing. Yeah, they were awful, but cheap. Well, the other thing about it was the airlines knew they were going to get returned because you couldn't use them anywhere else but the that's airplane. True. Yeah, that's true. Good point. You wouldn't want to steal them. Yeah, couldn't do anything with them. All right. Thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We really appreciate it. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com 
or if you want to go straight to the show notes for this episode, the shortcut is airplanegeeks.com slash 747. Uh, take a look at some of the photos that uh, you all have submitted. Um, if you have some great ones and it's after the publication date for this uh, episode, I might be able to sneak a few in later. So uh, go ahead and do that if you like. Our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Max Trescott, anything to close out with? Oh, just the usual. Check out uh, the Aviation News Talk podcast uh, wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to shoot me an email about anything, just head to aviationnewstalk.com. Click on contact at the top of the page. Great. And Rob Mark, how about you? I hate to keep repeating this, but okay, all David, the usual would... <laughs> places and the, uh, you know, the usual websites and, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just. You want me to stop asking you? Should I stop asking you? Oh, no, no, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> All right. Now, David, how about you? Uh, you can find me at the American Helicopter Museum, of course. You can find me on jetwine.com. Oh, wait a minute. That's Rob. Sorry. Um, <laughs> if you haven't listened to any episodes besides this one, then I'm sorry. But otherwise, go back and listen to everything other, every other ones because the information hasn't changed. All right. Is that it? That's I'm good there. Okay. You look like you were pensively looking at something that you were going to... I'm trying to find 747 photographs. Ah, okay. Meanwhile, Micah, our main man, how about you? Well, you can find me along with uh, Brian Coleman, former associate producer, as we still record the Journey is the Reward podcast. And I do apologize for episode 41. It should be posting at any time, an unexpurgated, unedited version. I'm curious to kind of hear that myself. And then I'm one of the last holdouts on Twitter. I'm still there, at least so far. And it's at Maine Fly. That's Maine like the state, M-A-I-N-E. And fly like, boy, Brian was flying a lot, F-L-Y, at Maine fly on Twitter. Very good. All right. And uh, you can find out where I hang out by going over to 30,000feet.com and you'll find links to the places where where you can find me. Um, sort of a meta sort of a thing, I guess. And if you'd like to uh, get an invitation to our Slack listener team or our Discord server, then just write us at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com and we'll send you the magic credentials to get in. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Night, everybody. Miska, Muska, Mouseketeer, Airplane Geeks, and time is here. <laughs> God help us, and thanks for listening. <laughs>